0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. With me are two of my black classmates, John Woodford and Ezra Griffith, I'm also joined by classmates Jay Pasikoff, Bill Collins, Doug Shapiro, Nick Bancroft, Hampton Howell, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is David Greenberg. He is a professor of history and of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He is currently writing a biography of Congressman John Lewis, the civil rights leader, for Simon and Schuster. David Greenberg is the author or editor of several books on American history and politics, including Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image, Republic of Spin and Inside History of the American Presidency, Calvin Coolidge, and Alan Brinkley, A Life in History. Here is David Greenberg.
1: Uh at the time, uh, there was sort of a, a, a gap between what academics were doing in history and reaching the public. I think in the last 20 years or so, it's become much more acceptable for academics to write for the public in my field. Uh, and, and so one of my advisors at, at Yale kind of said, Well, look, given the stuff you'd like to do, you're interested in recent political history field of history is moving away from an interest in politics, uh, you might want to consider journalism and some of the great history, uh, you know, people like Anthony Lucas and David Halberstam. You know, these are, are journalists. Um, so that's, that's what I did for a few years. I worked at the New Republic magazine. I worked on a book with Bob Woodward of the Washington Post, a book about the Clinton administration. Um, but after a few years, I, I much as I like, liked and liked journalism, got sort of the nagging itch, you know, I don't know why, to throw away a promising career and and go to graduate school. Um, You know, I didn't know that um, journalism was becoming an endangered profession, um, you know, but academia certainly didn't seem like a a sure bet either. But anyway, I went to Columbia for graduate school and all the while tried to continue (laughs) having something of a, uh, a voice in, in journalism, book reviewing, op-eds, that kind of thing, uh, which I, I continue to do. I write a lot for Politico these days. And uh, then uh, a few years later, uh, wound up at Rutgers, where I've been now for uh, I think it's something like uh, 17 years, which is sort of hard for me to believe. Uh, so I initially wrote um, about the presidency. My first book was on Richard Nixon. And it was a book called Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image. And my sort of uh, pitch of of summing it up with the elevator doors closing is it's not the history of what Nixon did, it's the story of what he meant. It's really uh, looking at Nixon and his image, how he was understood by a whole series of different groups in American public life, ranging from his entrance into politics in the 40s, until his death and even after his death. And so I get into questions of image making and presidential reputation and sort of a whole, a whole series of questions of how we understand public figures, political figures, the presidency, public, what their images mean, and also how the presidency itself came to be kind of um, defined by these contests over image. Uh, especially sort of in the era of Nixon and the era of television, mass media, advertising, public relations, and so on. And that sort of led me into uh, my next big book, which was called Republic of Spin, uh, in inside uh, history of the American presidency. And if the Nixon book was sort of about how images were received, how different people, groups, constructed their understandings of Nixon and of the president, this was more about how presidents sought to shape their images for public consumption. And I found that far from being something that started with Nixon or Kennedy or Reagan, this is something that goes way back. I mean, one could even go back to the very beginning, but I traced it to Theodore Roosevelt and really the beginnings of our modern media presence, I think come in at the beginning of the 20th century. And you know, as early as Roosevelt, they are working with skilled trained experts in the traffic in words and symbols and images. Um, we start to see the replacement of you know, the old type of political advisor who came up through the political machines and was really knew the party system um, to people who come out of journalism and advertising and public relations. And um, it's really astonishing how how modern this seems if you go back to the teens and 20s and, um, you know, presidents like Calvin Coolidge working with Edward Bernays, who was Freud's nephew and sometimes called the father of Public relations, although that was kind of public relations for himself, that Bernays kind of put out. There were people well before him who did that too. Um, uh, anyway, so that was that. That book sort of took me up through uh, Obama, and um, you know, I I, I think uh, I can say it was a successful book, but had the um, unfortunate timing of having been written. And the manuscript completed right before Donald Trump burst on the scene, so Trump is not in the book, and yet the book is published in uh, early 2016. My publisher actually held it so it would be out in the election year. And I go do all these book talks and you know events at bookstores and talking all about you know Theodore Roosevelt or Calvin Coolidge or Kennedy and Nixon. And all the questions are, well, what about Donald Trump? Um, And I sort of considered for a follow-up book uh, doing sort of a short book maybe on on Trump and spin. I was thinking, I had the title sort of Beyond Spin. Um, Well, I even had, what was the rest of the title? It was sort of um, Truthful Hyperbole, Alternative Facts and some other sort of euphemism that was being used in the Trump years, um, but as I thought about it, I was like, "No, I'm spending so much time, as it were, kind of as we all were, with Donald Trump every day, just in reading the news and dealing with whatever's on social media." And, and, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to spend any more time with Trump than I, I have to. And was sort of casting about for a next uh, book topic. Um, and um, it just sort of occurred to me one day that, you know, John Lewis is kind of the anti-Trump. <laughs> he was sort of someone who, um, who wanted to sort of, uh, uh, who, who represented rather than sort of the, the worst of our political traditions, the best of our political traditions, and who was still an important force on the scene and, and who uh, I felt in writing about John Lewis, I might be able to, um, see a different side of America and, and sort of get, get away from this rather uh, enervating uh, engagement with politics that seemed to characterize the Trump presidency. Um, and there was no biography of John Lewis to my surprise. So I thought, well, here's an opening. Someone surely uh, will be interested. And unfortunately. And, and Uh, My agent uh, found a nice home for it at uh, Simon Schuster. Uh, I met with him once to sort of get his blessing. He gave me his blessing, saying he was uh, happy to cooperate, but warned me he was very busy and sort of in the short term, probably uh, didn't have that much time. But I said, well, that's okay. I have lots of archives to consult. You know, there's lots of sort of background work I have to do before we get to that Mm -hmm. stage. Then, of course, in uh, late 19, uh, or just around New Year's, um, uh, 2020, uh, he he announced that uh, he had pancreatic cancer, as I'm sure you recall. And it was not too long after that that we all went into lockdown uh, for the pandemic. So I had a few phone conversations with him um, last spring. I can't really say I got to know him well, but I've now interviewed, you know, probably over a hundred people. I've been to many archives, um, immersed myself in the literature, and am somewhere in the middle of this project um, writing about John Lewis. Um, I'll just say a few things about uh, sort of the themes of the book, and then really want to turn it over to to all of you. Um, I think John provides sort of a bridge from the civil rights activism of the 1960s to today's politics, you know, both because of his longevity on the scene and remaining active, and even, even sort of ascending in stature. Um, and also because he devoted a lot of his congressional energies and, and uh, leveraged his stature Uh, in our moral and political life toward causes that would preserve and promote the memory of the civil rights movement. So he, for example, was a driving force behind the establishment of the Smithsonian uh, African American History and Culture Museum that uh, is now on the Washington Mall, Uh, as as people probably know because we now have a bill named after him. you know, he was always a force in fighting for the renewal uh, and strengthening of the Voting Rights Act. He actually in 2000, um, what year was it, 2005, uh, crossed the aisle to the Senate to testify against the confirmation of John Roberts as Chief Justice because John Lewis warned, John Roberts' record in the Reagan Justice Department suggested that he would gut the Voting Rights Act if he were named to the court. And eight years later, in the Shelby County decision, um, that's exactly what happened. Um, So many, if if not all, of the causes that John Lewis threw himself into as a congressman um, were somehow tied to the legacy and protecting the gains of the Civil Rights Movement. I think there's also the question of um, how an activist becomes a politician, and uh, John Lewis had a fairly traumatic experience in 1966, which I can get into, where he was, uh, as he puts it, de-elected as chairman of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, He had been elected at a meeting, had been re-elected, but then there were protests, and in a very sort of fishy uh, uh, situation. Uh, they called for a revote, not seem to be uh, viable under the SNCC bylaws, and Stokely Carmichael was elected instead. And John was sort of read out of the organization, along with Julian Bond and along with others from sort of the young, I mean, he's only a few years difference in age from some of these younger folks, but it, at that point in time, the that made a very big difference. There's also a big north-south split. Um, some of the Northern more radical types like Stokely Carmichael were much more ready to embrace more uh, militant politics than uh, you know, a rural Southerner uh, like, like uh, John Lewis. And I think that led John to embrace uh, the trajectory of what fired Rustin, who was one of his mentors called in a famous article, From Protest to Politics. And how do you, especially after the achievements of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, how do you channel that into um, continued gains? And and John came to believe that politics was an important and and, and viable channel for continued progress for Black Americans and racial equality more generally. In 1968, he goes to work for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. He's then involved in a group called the Voter Education Project. He was basically the Stacey Abrams of the 1970s, um, getting, you know, thousands and thousands of millions to vote uh, across the South. Many, there are older African-Americans who now had the barriers to registering to vote removed, but still maybe might have been hesitant or averse for various reasons. Um, uh, And and, and it was John's sort of project to get people to vote. And when Carter, I mean, he was not a huge fan of Jimmy Carter, but he did see Jimmy Carter's election on the strength of black votes in the South as a real triumph of black agency and black influence in the electoral arena. And then of course goes on to city council and then uh, US Congress. Um, And so there's also a story in here of how the people who came of age in the civil rights movement, and John's not the only one, go on to involve themselves in electoral politics and Congress as mayors uh, in other ways, sort of transforming the nature of the Democratic Party and I think of our politics more generally. I guess the final thing I'll say sort of perhaps to all of you is, I think there's something significant about the time that he and you were undergraduate students. Um, Todd Gitlin, the sociologist, has a great line in his book on the 60s, that 1960, according to the census, was the first time the United States had more students than farmers. Um, There is a growing college population And this included, you know, a a much larger uh, than ever before black college population. Um, And for
2: your information, Todd is a classmate of ours.
1: Oh, okay, all right.
0: Classmate, right? Right. Yeah,
1: that's right. Okay, I should have realized that. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, the um, HBCUs, but but also at other. schools, there was sort of the growing black population, and when the sit-ins start in 1960, uh, a lot of these young people become sort of the, the, the frontline uh, troops of, of the movement, and many stay uh, active, um, some for a few years, some for much longer than that, and, and some like John Lewis, active, although their activism takes you know, different shapes and forms. Um, so I think there is something unique about that moment in time, the role of students, and of course, students have in many periods of history had a, a kind of uh, activist political role. But in, in the history of the United States, there's, there's something particularly special, I think, about the early 1960s as that, that fulcrum uh, moment. Um, so let me leave it there. I would love to sort of hear your comments, questions. Uh, you know, I talked more about John, John Lewis and, and that period, but uh, feel free to, you know, people have mentioned my other books too, I'm happy to, happy to talk about those as well.
2: Let me unmute myself here. <clears throat> um, my Just following along with a sentence after your last sentence, I it brought me back to the 60s to think what I thought about activism, and um, I really didn't think about it much in this country, but uh, in high school and then in college, I uh, was amazed at the amount of, or the number of revolutions that were going on around the world, especially uh, I had a friend from Venezuela. Every time he went back for a vacation, he, he changed governments and he <laughs> told us about uh, how it split families and so on and so forth. And in college, uh, <clears throat> uh, reading some Russian history, uh, and seeing through Russian history in the, uh, really from the uh, early 1800s through mm, through the, the big revolution, uh, how these student movements drove the politics, uh, the active politics uh, of feudal society. So I was sort of disappointed in, in, in us because we never really got involved with this kind of thing. But then again, I didn't go on buses to the south and I, I spent most of my time rowing backwards up a river, and that was my goal. So anyway, that's my personal comment.
3: Uh, I'd like to pick up on, on what you were just saying, Nick. Uh, uh, for myself, I I became a bit more political when I was in college and, and more aware of... Uh, social influences i had been in denial about them before but it was the it was the like 1964 65 66 when i really got politicized after i left college uh and when i was facing dealing with the draft and uh when there was a lot more of uh anti-war uh action around boston where i live i'd also like to comment while i'm talking about uh uh john john lewis had a book out had a graphic novel out about uh, uh voting rights that, that was very interesting and that was his attempt to reach out to uh everybody i think it was a fairly recent one uh you'd you probably know david but
1: yeah i mean it's actually there it's actually a three volume set um the third of which is focused on selma and the campaign for the yes. voting rights act uh but it's it's really a very nice um, memoir, graphic memoir that you know, covers his early years uh, through that. And they've got a new one coming out this summer that I understand really the congressman signed off on and you know, helped shape um, you know, b- before his passing. It's the same uh, staff member of his named Andrew Aiden who brought it to press and it's called Run. So the first set of three books is called March and this is called Run. Um, And um, there's sort of a nice little story behind it, which is John Lewis had read in 1957. So he was a teenager at the time of the Montgomery bus boycott and was transfixed when one day he sort of heard on the local radio station in Troy, Alabama, um, a sermon from Martin Luther King and he got very interested in King and, and Montgomery, and there was a comic book put out by the Fellowship on Reconciliation, which was a pacifist and civil rights group called the Montgomery story, that sort of told the story of the bus boycott in comic book form. And John Lewis had read it, and apparently it was a huge influence on one of the uh, kids at um, Greensboro, where the first sit-in happened, and, the staffer of John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, was kind of one of these comic book buffs and knew about it. And he was talking about it with the congressman and they sort of hit on this as a way precisely to reach younger people. And my kids you know, were given March to read in middle school or even elementary school. And I do think it had the effect of introducing John Lewis as a war to a whole new generation that might not have really otherwise uh, been aware of him, or certainly to the same extent. Um, so it is it is a kind of remarkable document, an example how uh, an individual book can uh, really have a huge influence. May hmm. I Ezra? weigh in on that point?
0: Yeah. <clears throat>
4: um, as you've been talking, David, uh, a few things have been coming to mind. Um, I, I was struck by your comment that you sort of didn't want to devote more of your uh, time, attention to Trump, and instead, <clears throat> as an academic, wanted to write about you know, a, a very important, positive, inspiring figure. And um, as, as, as this group knows, I, I've, I've written about uh, someone who I consider a very positive, inspiring figure, which is Justice Stevens uh, of Supreme Court. Uh. And, um, and the question <clears throat> that comes to mind is, uh, what I'm flashing back to is, is JFK's Profiles in Courage. And as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder if someone, you perhaps, could put together a, more, a modern Profile in Courage book. Uh, as you surely know, uh, I guess this week, three books on Trump are coming out, and they're all, I guess, soaring to the top of the bestseller list. Um, will yours? Uh, have you thought that perhaps if you had indeed stuck with Trump, you might have been in this uh, group of happy authors this week? Um, and taking the next next step, I got a few different strands here. Are you, excuse me, but um, you've mentioned you know a comic book that was done. Um, As this group knows, based on the book I wrote, a documentary PBS film was uh, created about Stevens and this particular case that brought him into the public limelight and been trying with some other folks for years uh, to see if we could make a feature film on it along the lines of Marshall or the films that have been done about Justice Ginsburg. And I guess what it comes down to is how how do we um, sort of stem the tide of public interest in, in my opinion, a a lousy person like Trump um, to go the other direction? Is is writing a book about John Lewis, um, I mean, it's important for the historical record, I have no doubt, but in terms of inspiring people and, and letting people realize You know, it's not just the Trumps who are around us, but there are other inspiring people. Um, How does how does how does an academic do that? Um, Do we have to rely on Hollywood to come out with a, a, you know, a movie? You know, do we need another Profiles in Courage and turn that into a summer blockbuster? Um, What's your perspective? And I I apologize for going on at length here, but there are a few different strands of what I'm what I'm thinking about for a while uh
1: we yeah no I, I think these are these are good questions um you know nobody can know what is going to catch the public fancy in terms of a book or a movie documentary uh sometimes things you have a well-known author you have a lot of money behind it and the thing just disappears into the ether other times uh you know, surprise, sort of sleeper hit kind of catches everyone um, and, and catches the public attention. Uh, so it's, I've never made it um, a practice to try to write um, solely based on what's gonna sell the most or get the most attention. Um, at the same time, I do care about reaching the public. I've always been an academic who Wants my work to have both scholarly heft and rigor and also the accessibility and, and, and interest to a broader public. Um, you know, as I say, I've always written for newspapers, magazines, <coughs> book reviews, I've published with trade presses. Um, and, and so my hope is this will find a good audience, though, of course, one uh, can never know. Um, I think it's very hard to also know the reasons. So, you know, why why is there this continuing interest in uh, Trump? You know, it's, I, I, it's really not a, a valorization of him. It sounds to me like all these new books are quite uh, critical, if not in, in tone, at least in the uh, damning details, you know, new tidbits they reveal about just how uh, how bent he was on overturning the election results there at the end or, you know, other, other headline making uh, bits that, you know, I would say neither now nor in the future will likely reflect well on Trump. I, I think it's and it's look, it's legitimate. I mean, some of these books maybe have a bit of a sensationalist bent and uh, sometimes you, you, you end up reading them and beyond the stuff you already read in the headlines there's not that much there. But, you know, it's necessary and important that we uh, document this for history. It's it's understandable and I think legitimate that the public takes an interest of it. And so, and we can't just, you know, we can't have just history that is affirming or uh, uh, feel good. And in fact, one of the things I've kind of struggled with the most is writing about John Lewis without lapsing into a kind of reverential or hagiographic position. Um, just to give one example, I was talking about the incident in 1966 where he's you know tossed out of the chairmanship and basically tossed out of SNCC. I wrote a draft of the chapter when I was just doing the book proposal and Clearly, my sympathies were with John Lewis. And as I got to reading more, including reading more from the people who opposed him, there were a lot of criticisms of John Lewis. Look, you know, society was changing. He was out of step with the times. Maybe that's not so legitimate, but some who felt he was just too eager to stay in the good graces of the White House and wasn't ready to sort of challenge as fiercely as he ought to in his role as chairman um, you know and there was a, there was the chapter or the section when I rewrote it was stronger when it included in a very fair-minded way the voices of his critics alongside the voices of those who felt he had been wrong and I guess in the long run I feel that we're all better served when the history and the political narratives that we write are complex, are balanced, and I don't mean that in a false balance way where you have exactly as many <laughs> words of praise as criticism, but where you know they include multiple perspective and points of view um, that have a sophisticated analysis. Um, and so when I say, you know, I wanted to work on someone like John Lewis instead of Trump, it was more out of what's going to sustain me and my energies as a writer and researcher in going at the subject every day, uh, rather than like what would be good for the public to encounter. Because I think we we need to have the public encountering both. and most accounts are not all good or all bad. Most people are not all good or all bad. You know, I, uh, I might even be, if hard pressed, uh, able to come up with a few things that I think that, you know, Trump did that were, you know, <laughs> good things. Um, but um, so, yeah, and then on just the profiles and courage, I do think it'd be interesting to, have a new iteration of that book. As you probably know, some of the people, I think he's got a chapter on John Calhoun in there. Um, Some of the people who Kennedy included, and Kennedy was certainly a liberal, um, reflect the zeitgeist, the bias of his times. Uh, He includes a chapter on Edmund Ross, the guy who cast the vote to, uh, the deciding vote to acquit Andrew uh, Johnson in impeachment. And Ross, you know, we now know was a fairly corrupt fellow, Andrew Johnson, I think he probably shouldn't have been impeached and removed from office, but is a despicable person and lousy president. Um, So no doubt if John F. Kennedy were writing that book today, he would choose very different people. Um, So even what we judge to be profiles and courage, I think, is somewhat historically contingent as well as dependent on our own political uh, beliefs and outlooks. I, I don't know how uh, satisfying a response that is, but that's there a, a few thoughts in, in response.
4: Thank you, Cover, covered a lot of ground, I appreciate it.
1: In my books on Nixon and Republic of spin, it was the question of authenticity, particularly in the political arena, was one I dealt with a lot. It was a, sort of the central question in both and one of the conclusions I came to was that although we tend to think of spin um, and other forms of rhetoric, you know, these are words that suggest, on some meanings of the word, not necessarily, but some meanings of the word suggest deception, misleading. That here are politicians trying to present themselves as something they're not. But if you talk to any practitioners of SPIN, speech writers or image consultants, they give a very different account, which I sort of came to think is actually more correct. They are trying to sort of bring out the person's best self, best image, best message. If you try to um, you know, turn Joe Biden into a flaming radical, it's going to seem phony and inauthentic. So how do you turn Joe Biden, who maybe at one political moment seems a little bit gaff prone and bumbling, and is this guy really should be our president, to uh, this guy who has a more avuncular, steady as she goes, experienced image who people, by and large, obviously there's a lot of dissent, but you know are are much happier with and more confident as president? It's not that you reinvent the guy. You you stress certain qualities uh, that are already there and are already real. And that is what makes us say authentic. Um, That's sort of one piece of it. So when I say what I'm about to say about John Lewis, I don't mean for a moment to suggest there's anything wrong with what John Lewis has done. But I do think, go back to something Ezra said, in the last 10 years, maybe, 12 or 15, there was very much an effort among John Lewis's congressional staffers and probably by John Lewis himself to inhabit a certain persona and burnish a certain image. I think people like Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership sought to exploit, and that's a word we can, again, have negative connotations for, but I mean it in a neutral sense, <laughs> They thought to leverage and make use of John Lewis's moral stature to achieve certain objectives that they as Democrats had, that they thought were good objectives, you know, that John Lewis believed in. And so there was a kind of crafting of John Lewis as kind of saintly superhero. In fact, literally as superhero, he goes to Comic-Con, I don't know if people know what Comic-Con is, but it's sort of where people dress up as superheroes and on the strength of this March book as a comic book, he went wearing the outfit, the trench coat and backpack that he wore at Selma and little kids were like, you're my superhero. So there was a process of political image making that took hold around John Lewis. And again, I don't think it was inauthentic because I think it reflected true qualities of who John Lewis was. But when I started the book, I thought, okay, John Lewis, this is a chance for me to get away from all the stuff I exhausted myself on in Nixon's Shadow and Republic of Spin, where I'm thinking, well, who's real and who's phony and which political messages are misleading and which are legitimate, where does it cross, where does spin become lying? All of these kind of philosophical, that's something uh, previous chapter of my scholarship, I'm now moving on to John Lewis. And in fact, the questions of authenticity and image making in politics are very much present in the story of John Lewis too, not to my mind in a way that is, Meaning or disparaging of him, but in a way that all politicians use speechwriter. The presidents, politicians have relied on various forms of message craft, image craft, have turned to others for help with that, you know, from the beginning. It, it, it's part of politics, and in the modern media age, especially, um, this is the language of politics. So, like, to to me, to decry or, or or lament that politicians use consultants and don't just get up there and speak from the heart the way in <clears throat> every Hollywood movie since the candidate, you know, this is what politicians should do: tear up the script and just speak from the heart. Well, that that's not the language of politics. That you know, it's that's that's a Hollywood fable.
2: I'd like to just. Uh pop in for a second and
1: sure i see doug has his it, it, electronic it. hand up too
2: but go ahead oh i'm sorry go ahead did somebody else we'll go on that. go on nick okay um i uh i wonder if by any chance you've talked with don henley
1: don henley the
2: musician
1: yeah N- no i haven't
2: but the Eagles. yeah yeah <laughs> okay um <clears throat> um You asked if I'd ever met John Lewis, and I have met John Lewis. I met him briefly in in, uh, June 2013, and a dedication was really organized by Don Henley. And Uh Don Henley, not only being with the Eagles, um, is an ardent uh, land use conservation guy, and uh, an advocate for uh, individual rights, especially artistic rights, as you may may understand. Um, He had founded a a, a foundation basically called the Walden Woods Project in 1990 and in 2013, he brought a small group together for the dedication, for the dedication of this path. Uh, The path was called the, uh, the Amble. And it connected Walden Pond, i.e. Henry David Thoreau's cabin, to Ralph Waldo Emerson's house further in toward Concord. Right. And uh, it also, um, he had partnered uh, with Tony Morrison uh, to um, put a bench along the path. And it's called a, a bench by the road. Uh, to honor a, a man named brister freeman and it was the bench was on brister's hill and the guy's name was brister freeman and there's a granite plaque that reads on brister's hill lived brister freeman slave of squire cummings once there where grow still the apple trees which brister planted and tended so that's the honor <clears throat> that was bestowed on Brister Freeman by a combination of Toni Morrison and Don Henley. Don Henley had called on <coughs> um, <coughs> uh, John Lewis several times in the past that uh, that I know of. I haven't looked at it a lot, but I think there was quite a strong relationship with, ah. between the two men. Um, the uh, the guests at this particular dedication uh, were a descendant, usually a grandchild or a great grandchild of Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mahatma Gandhi's uh, grandson was there and a good friend of Martin Luther King, i.e. John Lewis was there and they all attended and they spoke. Um, What I don't remember was the specifics of John Lewis's speech, but I do remember it was vigorous when he spoke. So that's why I, it might be an interesting path for you to follow if you could get through the bureaucracy of getting to Don Henley.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had contact information for Don Henley, but it's not. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that that's 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 you know it's 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 important that um, nowadays you know especially in the last year or two, but it's been happening for a couple decades now that new memorials, new commemorations are paying attention to contributions of slaves, contributions of African Americans who you know sometimes had these things been done uh, in an earlier era would have been just ignored. I, I recently went to Monticello for the first time um, and was really bowled over by the high quality and historical sophistication of their uh, treatment now. And, you know, it was redone uh, a few years ago of uh, Jefferson slaveholding, Sally Hemings relationship, you know, his and his vast, um, you know, slave operation that let him live in the luxury he did, and it was, it was just extremely well done, and something that you know 20 30 years ago would not have been done. So, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear the, the, the bench for Brister uh, Freeman as well.
5: Yes, so um, I recently went to a, uh, the first public meeting in a year of the uh, Louisville uh, Public uh, School Board. And um, I'd never been to one of these meetings locally. I'm new to the area. Mm -hmm. I walked into the room, which was not huge, and I was immediately astonished by the number of television camera people that were standing around in the back of the room. And after sitting around and looking uh, at the audience, I realized that about half the people there were carrying big signs and plaques. And uh, after a few minutes, they began yelling and screaming and disrupting the meeting uh, and talking against the critical race theory and whether it's being involved in the local school system and so forth. And my understanding is uh, that critical race theory is not something that's all that new. It's been around for a few years, at least in the academic world and uh, I think in the world of uh, of public education. So my question for you is, do you have any idea whether John Lewis was involved in either the development of critical race theory or uh, what his thoughts were or may have been about it uh, today?
1: Um, You know, it's not a term I've ever seen him associated with. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, part of the current um, conflict over critical race theory uh, stems from the fact that people are, in some ways, talking about some very different things, and what some people are attacking is not what other people are defending. One is a body of thought originating uh, in the law, um, but that extends to you know, history and many other fields that sort of recognizes the way that um, racism gets institutionalized in in institutions and practices uh, in in culture that mean that it won't be corrected simply by all of us resolving to be better people. Um, Then there are questions about how history is taught and You know, for many decades now, I would say long before the 1619 project, uh, (laughs) professional historians have been placing much more emphasis on race and slavery and racism um, in our narratives of the American past. The books that win the big history prizes have for many decades now uh, frequently been on those subjects. And then a project like 1619 Project comes along that a lot of historians who are broadly sympathetic with the effort found to be lacking uh, in terms of its scholarship uh, and, and some of its claims. So that gets wrapped up in, are you attacking the 1619 Project? Does that mean you're attacking the teaching of racism and slavery? Or does that just mean you're attacking this particular set of essays. Um, And then there's, of course, the whole business of diversity training and how that's done in schools and workplaces, some of which I think, you know, is absolutely necessary. And sometimes from what I've read and occasionally what I've seen can be done in a very ham-handed and counterproductive way as well. I think there's kind of a whole range of many controversies here that kind of get shoehorned into this critical race theory debate. So yes, I, I find it not all that helpful as a category. What I will say about this is there's another strain of thought that's kind of in vogue right now that I associate with, for example, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project, to some degree, ta Coates. Um, and there was even a book last year of this title, Afropessimism. Um, and, and one of the premises is that the history of African Americans has been one of unrelenting and static oppression without um, much or any improvement. And that the system is so racist and corrupt at its foundations that any continuation of capitalism or liberal democracy or other things we associate broadly with the United States are bound simply to perpetuate uh, white supremacy, let's say. Uh, Now that's an extreme version of it, but a less extreme version would say it focuses on the lack of progress, the the absence of improvement in the condition of African Americans throughout American history, um, and John Lewis, you know, was very um, proud of one of his last public um, uh, appearances was at Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington D.C. when Mayor Muriel Bowser renamed the area 16th Street. Black Lives Matter Plaza. John Lewis, even though he was frail and it was the pandemic, made plans early on a Sunday morning when nobody would be around, to go out with a small crowd to see the newly painted over Black Lives Plaza. And it became a little bit of a media event. People started turning out. And uh, it, it was sort of an incredible moving event of his tying his own legacy to the current activism on behalf of Black lives. So I think he was very much in solidarity there. On the other hand, he often criticized those who might be in, say, this Afro-pessimism vein. He, just from his own life story, going from a poor boy on the farm in rural Alabama to being United States Congressman and living through what he genuinely saw as historic and significant changes, uh, in the condition of uh, black Americans. He did not, he did not have truck with the, the, the pessimistic, pe- pessimistic narrative. Not, he wasn't all pie in the sky and, and you know, rose colored glasses, anything like that. Um, but he believed that uh, the movement he was a part of illustrated that progress is possible of course, it meets resistance. Um, but in some ways, it put him at odds with some strains of the current activism. Uh, that, that may only be tangentially tend- related to critical race theory, but I think there are ways in which, you know, there, there are certain differences in position and in outlook and optimism versus pessimism and analysis of history um, that are nuanced and there's kind of a great deal of variety of opinion uh, among them. And that, you know, I do want to, in writing about John Lewis, uh, do justice to the nuance in his own thought.
0: Marcy, Marcy, we have to end with Marcy, go ahead.
1: Um, I wanted to ask David,
2: um, when you read critics of John Lewis, how do you separate honest criticism from intentionally misleading spin that was designed to undermine his policy
3: goals?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I think I, I partly is I, I try to evaluate whether I see myself see merit in the criticism. Um, so as I said, you know, although personally I'm sure my own sympathies in 1966 would have been closer to John Lewis than to uh, his rivals in SNCC, um, it's not as though what they say is about him was invalid or had no uh, merit. Um, from a certain perspective, I can very much see why some people thought you know, he had played an important role but it was time for more militant leadership for um, a, a different approach. And so I want to do those justice. In the political arena, you know, more recently, he actually didn't have too many, I mean, Republicans, I think, were kind of afraid to criticize him uh, because of his sort of aura and and stature. But, you know, look, he could be very partisan. Um, A lot of people um, were proud of him when he boycotted the Trump inauguration. But it's interesting, too, he also boycotted George W. Bush's inauguration um now i was no great fan of george w bush either um but he did speak at john lewis's funeral and speak of having a, a warm personal and constructive political relationship with him so mm-hmm.
0: when, when, when will your book be out
1: what's the time well it depends when i finish it. <laughs> uh i'm supposed to finish it in about a year and a half Uh, And then usually, you know, it's about a year till publication. Um, And we'll see. I tend to be when I compare myself to my journalism friends, I'm a very slow writer. When I compare myself to my academic friends, I'm a fast writer. So (laughs) I'm somewhere in the middle.
0: I see. Well, listen, thank you so much. And uh, I guess we'll see you in a couple of years again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Always happy to come back. And thank you all. The
0: upcoming book is about John Lewis. The author is David Greenberg. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.